Hey guys, welcome back to Belle's View and I'm Belle. Today I'll be discussing White Lotus that just finished its season finale last Sunday. The show centers around five to seven rich American guests who arrive at this beautiful luxury resort in Hawaii called the White Lotus. And as they continue their vacation there over the next seven days, chaos ensues. The whole point of them going on this vacation is to help them get away and regroup from the issues they're experiencing at home and within their families, only for them to bring it on the vacation and things implode and affect others around them. But before I get deep into the show, I will say that I was very hesitant to watch this show. I saw the coming attractions. I was like, okay, Connie Britton. Okay, Natasha Rothwell. Okay, Brittany O'Grady. I remember her from Star. The guy playing Connie Britton's husband, I feel like I've seen him in like something American Pie related, but I don't know what. Okay, Jennifer Coolidge. And the scenery is absolutely breathtaking. But I, I went back and forth because I was thinking, do I really want to watch these people? But then I thought about it again. And it was two things that led me to watch the whole show. One was the beautiful backdrop of Hawaii. I've, I've never been. It, it, it looks so beautiful and and so tropical and as somebody who hasn't been on vacation in over two years to use it as a form of escapism as if I'm on vacation I was like okay bet and then Connie Britton I've been a fan of Connie Britton since Nashville to this day I feel that she was robbed at the Golden Globes and Emmys because she played the hell out of Raina James. And even after that, I remember watching that miniseries, um, Dirty John, that was on Bravo, that was based on a true story of this middle-aged woman who got scammed and nearly murdered by her new husband. Um, when I saw the coming attractions for the series premiere of 911, it was her and Angela Bassett that I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to watch this. So I've been a fan of Connie Britton's for quite some time now. Moving along, the opening scene. So you see all of the guests arriving to five of the hotel staff waving and smiling, greeting them. And, and we open the season with Lonnie, who is new to the White Lotus. And Armand showing her, Armand is showing her, and we open the scene to Lonnie, who is a Hawaiian local new to the resort staff. So Armand, who is the hotel manager, is teaching her the ropes. He's like, just think of yourself as an interchangeable helper. And he, he was advising her on, you can do this, but not too much of this. And... I remember looking at it and being like, okay, assimilation, just, just nodding my head profusely. Um, because you saw in that moment that the staff were literally there just to make the guests feel comfortable, 
and really just to exist. So we open the scene to Lonnie, who is not a local. We open the scene to Lonnie. We open the scene to Lonnie. We, the, the opening scene, in the opening scene, we're introduced to Lonnie, who is a new staff member at the White Lotus, and she is also a local Hawaiian. Armand, her boss, who's also the hotel manager, tells her, you know, we're interchangeable helpers. Let's just wave and smile. We want to make them feel comfortable. Um, you can do this, but, but not this. You can do a little of this, but not too much of that. And as he was explaining, I was thinking, okay, so assimilation. That's essentially what assimilation is. And you see her and the other staff members be required and expected to present only a shell of themselves in order to make these wealthy hotel guests feel comfortable. So there was something problematic in that. And it also speaks to how non-white people, BIPOC, is required to do some of those things in white spaces. And the fact is, Lonnie was being asked to do this as a native Hawaiian on Hawaiian soul in order to appeal to foreign guests. Um, but I will dive deeper into that later in the series. The reason why I'm discussing it now is because it is our opening uh, it is our opening scene and it definitely sets the tone as to the whole point of the staff really just being a shell of themselves in order to get by in their jobs. Um, and really only being looked at for the mere purpose of subordination and to enhance the experience of the wealthy white guests that are arriving at the hotel. Moving along. So the Mossbacher family. Nicole Mossbacher is the matriarch and patriarch of the Mossbacher family. She is the CFO of a Fortune 500 company and at one of the top SEO engines in the country. On this trip, her husband Mark accompanies her, her daughter Olivia, who's in college, Olivia's friend Paula, and their teenage son, Quinn. As time goes on in this series, we obviously see the rifts in this family. Nicole and Mark, even though they're tolerating each other, she definitely makes the decisions in the family. Um, we learn that Mark has had an affair in the past that still causes rifts in their marriage. And even though Nicole booked this vacation to relax, we see her working most of the time trying to see know how the teenage son is doing because he's stuck in this really small room in their suite and constantly having to defend herself at her college age daughter's disses on people she looked up to like Hillary Clinton and having these conversations that you can tell annoys Nicole about white people being the narrative so often and about imperialism and, and colonialism. 
she kind of sort of can't catch a break in a way. And then Mark, for the most part, he's just there. We find out that he thinks he has cancer and that it could be hereditary because his father died when he was 16, 17 years old. Um, he gets the results back to learn that he doesn't have cancer and that his father didn't die of cancer, but that Mark's father had died of AIDS. And that come to find out Mark's father was actually either gay or bisexual and had been having sex with men before his passing. So this takes Mark for a loop and you easily see him spiral and this middle-aged man becomes like a broken 15, 16-year-old boy who is mourning the loss of the idea of his father being this man's man, patriarch of the family, and feeling like, I didn't really know who the fuck he was then. How did I not know? Right? So even more so... Nicole has to comfort him and stop the kids from fighting with one another and is trying to make everybody comfortable while he's just sitting there sulking. So there's that. And then you have Olivia, their oldest child who is in college. Her and her friend Paula are on this trip and they're always reading these books about, you know, feminism, colonialism, imperialism. So we're led to believe that they're very educated and well-rounded and have more liberal views compared to Nicole and Mark's not-so-liberal views. And within that, you see the generational difference. For example... The family is outside enjoying their time at the resort during a meal and Olivia notices her father is checked out and she's like, Dad, what's wrong? So Nicole tells her and she was like, I don't see what's so bad about that, Dad. Maybe Grandpa was a power bottom. That doesn't make you feel better. Maybe that can make you feel better. How come that doesn't make you feel better that maybe Grandpa was a power bottom? My jaw dropped. I was like, did she just say that? I got secondhand embarrassment for her. And I had to pause it and then rewind and watch it again to make sure I heard what I heard. And what I initially heard is exactly what she said. It was definitely like the funniest moment in the series for me. Because you, you just see the generational difference. Olivia is Gen Z. I'm guessing she's between 18 and 20 years old. Today, because being queer today is normal. It's becoming more and more normalized and it's becoming less and less taboo. And the queer community is more confident and, and less afraid to own their quiz and, and, and are less afraid to own their queerness. And as a result, they have become a very strong and united community more than ever, who not only has political power, but they also have economic and social power as well, more than they ever have in this country. And that wasn't the case 20 years ago. That wasn't the case 35 to 40 years ago when Mark was coming up. 
although our society is very homophobic, there are some things that Mark says on this trip that's homophobic that was probably normal to say when he was coming up in the 80s. However, those things are highly inappropriate and disrespectful. But then in his mind, he's thinking because he grew up and that's what he heard and that's what people used to say, that's okay. But no, it's harmful. So when he bugs out at his daughter's comment and says something homophobic, she's like, dad, you shouldn't say that. Like, that's not cool. You shouldn't say that at all. It comes off very homophobic. So I liked the conversation because it shows the generational difference as well. But at the same time, I was nervous for her because I was thinking, I would never, if this was my father, I would never, ever say this to my dad. Because I kept thinking, was she genuinely trying to help or was she just trying to get under his skin? I think part of her thought she was genuinely helping, but it only made him feel worse. And I say that because I am a millennial in my late 20s. And even though I do not have a white father, I do have a father who also grew up in the 70s and 80s and who belongs to Generation X. And they are a generation that have been around for a while, have seen some things, but are still quote unquote young enough to evolve in their thinking when it comes to queerness, um, when it comes to feminism, respectability, politics, misogyny, etc. But sometimes members of that generation act as if they're too old to learn because they really don't want to learn anything different than what they grew up on. So that's why I, I got nervous for her because I was thinking, even though she's right, isn't it kind of disrespectful to say that, knowing that he's, he's struggling with this? So I guess I was thinking, girl, you didn't read the room. Like, she didn't do anything wrong. I just felt she should have read the room <laughs> a bit better so she could be prepared for his reaction. So going into Olivia a bit more, her friend Paula from college has, accompan has accompanied her. And their relationship is very interesting. Like they hang out, they make fun of some of the guests, they're always reading books, they're always making comments in regards to you know, political and social issues. But also, they have a frenemy relationship. And we find out midway during the series that Olivia likes to have more than Paula. It makes her feel good. And to me, that was a big-ass red flag. Come to find out there was a guy that Paula had been interested in and Olivia, quote-unquote, took him away from her. So... That let me know this friendship isn't really a friendship. That Olivia likes to feel in control 
and like she has more power than Paula. And that can be dangerous. And it automatically made me, I mean, and it automatically made me feel uncomfortable for Paula. And it also made me question a lot of Paula's decisions. If you knew that your friend likes to have more than you because it makes her feel good and you're also sneaking around the hotel having sex with one of the staff members and don't want her to know because you know she'll try to make she'll try to flirt with him why did you agree to come on this trip with her if you feel that you can't fully trust this person and you can only trust them but so much why would you push yourself in a position where their family has paid for you to come on this trip with them or if you wanted to leave earlier than initially planned it's not like you could go because you don't have the money to do it. And then should you and her get in a big disagreement, how do you know she's not going to flip on you and stage it as if an accident happened when really she pushed you off a balcony or something? These were all the things that I was thinking about. And the reason why I was thinking about it was because I, I, I don't really like using this term for myself because I feel that there is a big difference between being black and being a person of color. Um, they, don't, they don't touch on Paula's racial ethnic identity. We just know that she's either biracial or multiracial. And in real life, Brittany O'Grady, who plays Paula, is biracial. And, and part of her identity is half black. So I'm going to speak to that. As a black woman, I understand that there are certain spaces where I need to be very cautious. And when it comes to going on vacations or places I've, I've never been with people, I need to be able to trust them. I need to know, you know, if I'm going to get very tipsy on this trip, that they'll have my back not use it against me, not leave me to be dehydrated or something. And I feel that Paula didn't do her due diligence and didn't fully think through the possibilities of danger from this so-called friend. And it's important as a black person and as a person of color to think about those things. Olivia is the daughter of a well-known CFO of a Fortune 500 company. If she were to snap on you and knock you unconscious on this island, drown you, push you off a balcony or, or something, or get violent with you where you're unconscious or dead, she can get away with it because her mother has the connections and the power and the privilege to do it so that it was an accident, whether the mother knew that it was an accident or not. That's another part of white privilege. And I was upset 
that Paula didn't think about that. There have also been some cases in this country where there have been black people who trusted who they thought to be were their friends, who were really their enemies. Where there is one woman in particular in the state that I live in where her death is still trying to be solved. She went to a co-worker's house for a sleepover, was very excited about it, and somehow ended up over the co-worker's balcony. And they're blaming it on her drinking alcohol and taking medication. However, there were four to eight other people there. And one of the co-workers' boyfriends actually worked as an attorney at the law enforcement department within that county to get rid of some of the evidence and to distort information to protect himself, to protect his girlfriend, and to protect the women that she considered her real friends. So even though this took place nearly three years ago, her death has still not been solved and nobody has been arrested or jailed or imprisoned yet. Even though based on what we know so far, we're led to believe that this sleepover could have been a setup to cause her demise. And I don't think that woman was expecting that. So I, I even take that into consideration because that possibility is something to consider as a black woman and as a person of color, especially when you are going on trips with a, a group of white people and especially a group of white people that you don't really know. And the only one that you know, you can't even fully trust. So there's that. Moving along, there's a teenage son, Quinn. We think he has a porn addiction. Him and his sister don't get along, and he tends to sleep on the beach and falls asleep jerking off to porn, but becomes enlightened on this trip um, after seeing a group of paddlers who are canoeing and asks if he can join them and feels like his life has more meaning and purpose. I honestly didn't see the point of Quinn. I, I'm, yeah, I really didn't see the point of Quinn. I didn't love him. I didn't hate him. I was just like, okay, whatever. To our next group of guests, Shane and Rachel are newlyweds. They had this whirlwind romance right after Rachel had experienced a bad breakup, and they are now on their honeymoon. But Shane feels that their honeymoon is partially ruined when Armand, the hotel manager, gets their suite mixed up and doesn't take accountability for it until senior leadership of the hotel company calls him to fix it because Shane comes from a wealthy and high-powered family. So Shane is very much the typical wealthy, bigoted white guy. Like he wears the polos that you see on the golf course. 
He says whatever he wants, despite how insensitive and inappropriate and disrespectful it is. He's verbally and emotionally abusive. He has a temper issue. He sees Rachel as this beautiful trophy wife that would be great to have on his arm and that would be great to have children with in order to continue his family legacy. So that's how he views her. And on the other side, Rachel, Rachel is a journalist who is struggling in her career. I'm assuming Rachel, they don't touch on her exact age, is in her late 20s to early 30s. And yes, she has work, but she doesn't make much money in it. She has not got to a place in her career where being a journalist has become lucrative for her. And she wants to be able to elevate her career, but she also feels like a failure because she's not where she wants to be in it, even though she's passionate about it. And it's interesting because even when she smiles at Shane, smiles at the hotel staff and other guests they run into on this trip, you can see this brokenness in her. You could see this brokenness in her eyes. Even though she's smiling, you can tell that she's not happy. And we quickly learn that she isn't happy and she starts to second guess marrying Shane. And she second guesses this more so when his mother makes a surprise visit to their hotel room on their honeymoon. He called his mother because of the honeymoon suite issue. Um, and it worked. It put fire under Armand's ass. However, it shows how ridiculous and how power hungry and manipulative this woman is that she, that she would think it's appropriate to invite herself on her son's honeymoon. Are you kidding me? And as she's talking to Rachel and Shane brings up the fact that Rachel wants to continue her career even though she's having issues with it and Rachel didn't want this so he brings up this sensitive issue to his mother without his wife's permission she's like oh no now that you've married Shane you'll have money and with money you can do anything I serve on a lot of different boards I don't have a boss I I can help with different parties and fundraisers and, and donor stuff and I can just go how I please don't work it's all about money and you just see Rachel look terrified because she's thinking, what did I marry into? But then me, as well as some of the audience members, are looking at her like, how the fuck did you not know this? Are you telling me it really took you being on this goddamn honeymoon to realize who the fuck you married and what type of family you married into? We see her struggling with this internal turmoil the entire time. And last of our guests, Tanya. Tanya, 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 played by Jennifer Coolidge. Tanya is grieving the loss of her mother. She goes on this trip to help her feel better and, and regroup. And we learn that she grieves her mother even though she didn't like her because her mother was very mentally and emotionally abusive. And as a result, Tanya is a very insecure person who is also an emotional wreck. That makes sense. And there's this scene in the first few episodes. They're on this boat 
and she releases the ashes of her abusive dead mother. You just hear her venting about how her mother was a shit mom and terrible and prioritized men over her and neglected her and would, would constantly put her down and call her fat. And even though she hates her for doing that, she misses her. I felt for her in that moment because two things can be true at the same time. Who, for anyone who has issues with their parents or who's had an estranged relationship with their parents, you can love them while also being furious with them for things that they've said and done. It doesn't make you a terrible person. It's like she was saying, fuck her for all the shit she did, but God damn it, I also miss her. And I love how vulnerable and honest she was because that, that shit is real. That shit is real. During the series, we see her quickly befriend Belinda, who is the spa manager at the White Lotus. Um, Belinda offers to give her some type of massage or whatever to help calm her nerves or whatever, but she quickly looks to Belinda to be her therapist. Even though Belinda isn't a therapist, she's a spa manager. And starts to talk about, you know, building a business together, which Belinda is very excited about because she hadn't fully considered it before and she's thinking maybe it's possible now. Um, but that quickly disappears when she meets this man on the trip, has a one-night stand, they start a relationship and She's just obsessing over, oh, I don't know if he likes me. What if he doesn't like me when he sees the real me? Yada, yada, yada. As I said before, Tanya is very insecure. She's trying to regroup and figure out what's next for herself. But at the same time, falls victim to her past patterns and the patterns of her dead mother. Moving along to the staff. So Lonnie, who I mentioned in the beginning, actually ends up having her baby in Armand's office. She took this job despite being pregnant because she needed the money. And we never see her again. Okay, like it's as if she was never there. But we're all like, is she ever going to come back? What was the point of introducing her if she disappears within the first episode? which I'll get to later. We have Armand. Armand, again, our hotel manager, he's a recovering drug addict that relapses when he steals the drugs of Paula and Olivia and goes on a bender. He also has a sexual relationship with an employee half his age that looks to be his son, maybe even his grandson or his nephew. And he trades sexual favors for shift flexibilities so this employee can be able to, you know, have more leeway in his job on top of not taking full accountability until his job is on the line for messing up Shane's suite. So there's Armand. 
Some people think he's funny and interesting. He is great at making people feel good. That's the whole point in, in hospitality. However, I, I, don't, I, I don't give him anything. I don't give him anything. And lastly of our staff, we have Kai. Kai works as a bellhop at the White Lotus and he's also a luau performer. He ends up having in it, well, would it be an affair? Him and Paula hook up throughout the series and we learn that his family is against him working at this hotel because his family is in a legal battle trying to fight back for their land from white Americans who have forcibly taken it. That land was supposed to stay within our family and was promised to us. And my family is fighting to get that land back. So with Kai, the show gives us a bit of insight into the after effects of colonialism also touching on gentrification and the fact that some of the native Hawaiian locals here do not have the same advantages of the guests and do not have the money to fight the rich white-owned companies that are trying to take more of the land to build hotels and, and residential spaces for wealthy people, especially wealthy white Americans. Which allows me to go into how locals are treated in this series. So again, set in Hawaii, right? Beautiful, stunning, vibrant, tropical. This, this beautiful backdrop, right? However, it showcases the beauty of Hawaii without showcasing the full essence of its people and its culture. For example, for example, the land in which this resort was built on was forcibly taken by its original owners and nurturers and caretakers in order to service wealthy people, specifically wealthy white guests. The resort is owned by white people, and this resort location is managed by a white person. That's palatability all around. You have some of the native Hawaiians who are staffed, like Kai, like Lonnie, but there's not many of them, and it speaks to something else. You know, Kai, he participates in some of the luau performances that take place during the dinners at the hotel to give guests a quote-unquote authentic Hawaiian feel, but it's like to give the guests a real Hawaiian feel, air quote, air quote, but not too much because to this day, American culture views non-white as different and different is still seen as discomfort, intimidating, threatening. And in a capitalistic world, if you're trying to attract somebody with a certain amount of money to go to this hotel and refer people so you can continue to make money, you want to make it appeal to the customer's needs as much as possible. But the thing is, 
it's pandering so much that you are watering down what those guests can experience of Hawaii. It also further perpetuates harm, this idea that we can take bits and pieces of people's cultures to enjoy while disrespecting the rest of the culture and discarding its people, which is delusional. You, you can't take bits and, and pieces of someone and discard the rest. That's not how life works, but that's how some businesses work. That's how some people work. And I honestly think it's violent. And it also speaks to something larger as well. Again, palatability and assimilation. Watching Lonnie waving and watching Kai do his performance, knowing that the, the most of these guests don't really understand what's taking place or care. Okay, they're just thinking, oh, Native Hawaiians doing like a dance. How cool. It's just a reminder that the BIPOC community is expected and damn near required to do this on a day-to-day basis. Adhering to respectability politics, like, oh, we think your hair in this way is inappropriate and unkept and looks low class, so we think you should straighten it or get hair that's straightened so that we feel that you're a bit more worthy to get this job or we want you to always be perky and smiley so that we can feel comfortable because when you're not always perky and smiley we think you're standoffish it just touches on the fact that the BIPOC community is expected to kind of like suppress part of their identity in order to simply survive And in different ways, we do that to be able to get through corporate workplaces in America, to get through educational institutions, for those of us who are pursuing a mainstream career in the media industry. There may have been some things that, or political views that you were once passionate about that you're advised as your career grows to double down on because there's a potential to reach a larger market, a larger audience, and to make more money and have career longevity. And sometimes people trade that in order to achieve that mainstream success. And although some people find that controversial and like, oh, you're a sellout, people do it every day. It just shows that this whole idea of palatability to make one group of people feel comfortable permeates throughout nearly every aspect of living in this country. And I understand it because again, people need to pay their bills. People want financial security. Not only do people want financial security, but people are taking into account the the work that went into making sure they're able to go to college um, to get to where they want to be. People are taking into account the sacrifices that their parents have made, whether their parents and predecessors have been in this country for centuries 
or whether they are the direct descendant of a first generation of an immigrant. People take into account the sacrifices in, in which their parents make because they do want to achieve that success so that they don't have to struggle and because their parents want better for them than what their parents were initially given. But it doesn't change the fact that it's hard to manage that. Being your authentic self while having to suppress elements of that because the people who have the power will see it as a threat. It's like having two identities in one body. So there's that. And I like that the show speaks to that. I don't know if they knew they were speaking to all of that, but that's what I got from it. Now the ending. The ending. So the Mossbachers. Before I get into the Mossbacher family, I'm going to talk a bit more about Paula. So Paula learns about Kai and how his family is trying to fight to get their land back. She comes up with the idea for him to break into the Mossbacher suite, steal the jewelry they keep in the safe, and use the money from that so that his family has lawyers to fight back more and to actually be able to build a even more solid case. Kai initially wasn't going to do that, but he's desperate and he does it anyway. And it goes wrong because during that time, the family's supposed to be out on the water and Nicole decides to come back. So she freaks out because she's like a robber and Mark comes back. So Mark and him get in a tussle. Nicole claims that Mark saved her, but no, he wasn't because Kai was beating Mark's ass. Kai nearly broke Mark's nose and was able to get away. We find out later on that Kai gets caught. So we're led to believe he's been arrested and that he's in jail and that he could face imprisonment. I don't completely blame Paula for this because he could have just said no. He could have done nothing with the information she gave him. However, she is partially to blame. I understand her feeling for him and his family and the fact that he, you know, needs the money to survive. The fact that he is dancing at a property that was forcibly taken by his family <laughs> and other Native Hawaiians. Yeah, that, that's definitely a hard pill to swallow. However, this wasn't it. This wasn't it. And this is why I have even more of an issue with Paula. Paula, you are a plus one on this trip. How are you going to come on this trip and plot to have this family robbed? And her excuse was, you really wouldn't be stealing anyway because you were like they stole from you already. And I get it, but no. 
No. And she didn't even think about what if he got caught. She didn't think about what if he told. She didn't think about the family turning on her and her being jailed and imprisoned in Hawaii away from her family if she has any. That was my issue with Paula. The fact she came up with that idea. She's on this, she took the free vacation because I bet she thought, ooh, Hawaii, they're paying, five-star resort. I can see that. However, you know, you're talking about all these things you're learning from all these books you're reading, political and social, trying to have these conversations about race and imperialism and colonialism with your frenemies, very white-ass Gen X parents. And then being disappointed when they say something that when they don't get it and when they don't want to get it, it's like, could you not read the fucking room? You know their daughter. You go to school with her. You see her flaws. You don't even fully trust her. You don't think she gets that from somewhere and it takes you being on this vacation and sitting at dinner tables with this family to realize how bigoted your friend, even though she tries to act like she's not, and her family is, and now you feel disgusted? Again, I guess in your head you thought this free trip five-star resort would outweigh those issues, but it did not. And now she has a guilty conscience. And it also speaks to the fact that she has more privilege than Kai. We don't know anything about Paula's family. We don't know if she comes from a rich family, an upper middle class family. We don't know anything about her, but the fact that she is Olivia's friend, she was sleeping with Kai, and she gave this him, and she gave him this idea to steal in order to get the money to help his parent his family build a solid case and getting their land back that's all we know however she does have more privilege than him because she's been living in quote-unquote mainland america so there are things that she has access to that he does not also Olivia is her quote-unquote friend. So Olivia could cover for her, which she did. Kai doesn't have anybody to cover for him. So it shows that too. And then, yeah, that, that, that is my problem with Paula. Olivia, who'd been practically following Paula this whole time, learns that the guy who stole from her family was in fact a dude Paul has been fucking and calls her out on it. I get calling her out on it because her parents could have got hurt. But Kai, I feel like Kai wouldn't hurt a fly had it not been this situation. He's a really sweet guy. And even though I really don't like Olivia at all, I think she's very full of shit and performative. I think she has some type of inferiority complex 
I don't like the fact that she felt the need to follow her friend around the hotel when she wasn't with her. Why do you need to know where she is at all times? Why do you need to know who she was with and what she's doing at all times? Why did you feel the need to introduce yourself to Kai after learning that's the guy she's been sleeping with? It's very weird. It's very off. Again, she calls her out on it and decides not to say anything to her parents. She sees Paula feels very guilty and knows she's done something horrible that can't be reversed. And she comforts her in that moment. I'm not surprised. I mean, well, you know what? I am surprised because part of me felt like Olivia was going to tell. Olivia was going to tell her parents and Paula was going to get arrested. I really thought that because again, I don't trust Olivia. And even when I look at it, when I look in her eyes, I see evil. <laughs> I don't trust her at all. But as a result, whether Paula realizes or whether Paula realizes it or not, Paula's indebted to Olivia. Because at any moment in their friendship, Olivia can threaten to tell her parents that Paula concocted the plan to have their suite robbed. And that could lead to Paula being jailed or imprisoned. Which is fucked up, but again, I blame her because she did not do her due diligence. And I think part of the reason she didn't do her due diligence is because she was thinking, oh, free trip, by resort, getting this through my friend, and the fact that this is her friend, she is the friend to the daughter of a Fortune 500 company. There is privilege and proximity to privilege. Because it, it feels as if it's an invisible cloak until it's not. And you saw Paula realize that during meals with the family, the things the parents were saying. Now, were they saying anything that was blatantly racist? No. But they were saying something that was very Gen Xer and very, it was a rude awakening for her. But she decides to continue to participate. And at the same time, she kind of doesn't have a choice because again, if you know Olivia is your frenemy, she can flip at any moment. So it would make sense to keep her happy so that you don't get a rap sheet. And for Olivia, that means she can have more power, more control and connection to Paula. Moving along, Rachel and Shane. So Rachel finally comes to terms with the inner turmoil we've seen her struggle with during the show and tells Shane she thinks she made a mistake marrying him. We learn that they got together after she went through a bad breakup and she's rethinking her marriage. Of course he's mad, but here's my thing. You know your husband has a temper. You know he's a whiny baby. You know he's a spoiled-ass mama's boy. He just brought a big-ass knife into the suite. 
do you really think, on top of the fact he says some very inappropriate and rude things, nonchalantly, like there's nothing wrong with it. I've seen your eyes widen in horror because of the things your husband has said. And you thought it was appropriate to tell him you think you made a mistake marrying him? Girl, I'm surprised Shane didn't hurt her because I thought he would because he looks like he would. I don't understand why she couldn't have that full conversation by the pool in public. The same way they continued the conversation by the pool um, under the cabana. He damn near flipped the table over. Anyway, she decides to stay with him. They reconcile at the end. I was upset because I was thinking about her safety. I felt that she was not emotionally safe with her own husband. And the power and influence his mother has over him is very problematic, which makes it more unsafe. And if he can damn near flip a table over, even when he was like making a joke and she wasn't in the mood and he tapped her on the back of it, he tapped her on the back of the neck with a book or something. To me, I felt like that was violent because what about her aura energy said, sure, husband, you can playfully tap me on the back of my neck. I didn't like that at all. It felt like he was petting an animal. Like, he invaded her space. I say this all to say I was upset because he is capable of being physically abusive and possibly killing her. And it would be very easy for him to cover it up because she doesn't come from money, she doesn't come from a wealthy family, and with his money, his wealthy family, his mommy can easily call up some DA or whoever to make sure he gets off scot-free and to make it as if Rachel never existed. And even if her parents try to figure out what happened, they wouldn't because they don't have the money to uncover whatever um, skeletons that they buried in a closet. So that's why I was upset that she went back to him. But in the grand scheme of things, It kind of makes sense. Here she is in her late 20s, early 30s. She's not where she wants to be in her career. She's been working hard, but she's still not at that point where she wants to be. She's not at the point where she can live comfortably in her career. It's very obvious that Rachel feels like a failure. Throughout the entire show, even though she smiles with Shane and when she meets the guest, you see the brokenness in her eyes. I believe she felt like a failure. And the fact that he's like, you're married to me now. You can get whatever you want with my money. Like, you could do whatever you want. Even what Shane's mom said. You can, now that you have money, like you can do whatever you want. You don't have to have a boss. You can sit on different charities and fundraisers and help with different donation events and stuff. You can do whatever you want. 
you, you, you have the autonomy. Why not enjoy it and live comfortably? So I look at it like this. She could have chose to be on her own, continue her work, to work towards where she wants to be, even if she feels that her trajectory is not meeting her idealistic expectations for her career. Or she can choose the security and safety net of being with a man who has money, where she doesn't have to worry about being in a job that she likes, that she wants to grow in, but that simply just pays the bills and doesn't really leave anything left over. So she chose security over the possibility of complete and utter failure. And because in Western society, we live in a success-oriented environment, we, we live in a performance-driven environment where success and high performance and exceptionalism is the equivalent to being worthy of respect and common decency. Failure is looked at as the worst thing. Failure is looked at as weakness. It is looked at as underperforming, unworthy, less than. And nobody wants to be in that category. Nobody wants to be in that category. Nobody wants to be seen as that. You want to win. You want to experience the perks of winning and being successful. And I believe that is what Rachel chose. She chose security. She got the husband that's, I guess, conventionally attractive, who has money and wealth. She can live comfortably with him and try to build a life with him and not have to deal with the possibility of failing in a career she was really passionate about. We fear failure all the time. I get it. Moving along, Tanya. Tanya acts like she's grown over the course of the past seven days because this trip takes place over a week, but she hasn't. And again, it was only a week. She leaves with a new boyfriend. They're going on vacation in Honolulu. But he keeps having this cough. And I think it was implied that this man is probably dying or has cancer that can lead to his death. I don't think she really learned anything about repeating cycles because she's repeating the cycle of using men as her form of validation and escapism from her deep-rooted insecurities. I wasn't necessarily pissed at her, but I was upset with her in the way she dealt with Belinda. She does leave Belinda some money, but she should have never even mentioned the possibility of going into business with Belinda after being on this trip for a couple of days. 
where at one point she sounded serious about pursuing this as a real business. And then when Belinda presents her with some ideas that she has, she's over here obsessing over the dude that's now her boyfriend, whether or not he's truly into her or if she was just some hookup for him. She's so fixated, like, oh, he's at the bar. I think I'm going to go over there. Like, what? You sound like a child. You are 50, 60 years old, acting like a fucking teenager over Josh. He's so dreamy being at the bar. And I want to know if we can go further than just, you know, our little makeout session. When you're supposed to be talking about business, that's how immature she is. But whatever. The staff. I'm happy that Belinda chose her mental and emotional wellness. She is the spa manager and as hospitality staff, she is supposed to be empathetic and and welcoming and make guests feel comfortable. But I think she recognized from her experience with Belinda that she overextended herself when it came to empathy and compassion and Tanya fell through on her promise. So when Rachel comes to her toward the end and and vents to her about her marriage and how she feels about her career in life, she just looks at Rachel, gets up and says, you know what, I'm out. And I was like, do that. She's not the therapist. Spa managers aren't therapists. And what kills me is that some people on Twitter were like, oh, if Belinda would have given her some advice, maybe Rachel would have made a better decision. Get the fuck out of here. I don't know if you realize it, but you are perpetuating the idea that like this black woman is supposed to be this grown ass woman's therapist. She is not a therapist. That is not her specialty. That is out of the purview of her job description. Rachel knew what was up with the red flags with Shane and his mother. She didn't need Belinda to give her any reassurance as to what decision to make. Get the hell out of here with that. You really are going to coddle and infantilize this grown-ass woman? Fuck out of here. Armand. So people like Armand. I mean, he did a good job being like the typical friendly, welcoming, make sure all the guests are okay thing when it comes to being a hotel manager, but he did fuck up sometimes. He did get Shane's honeymoon suite mixed up. He didn't take accountability for it until his job was on the line because Shane and his mom were able to get in touch with senior leadership because they have connections there. Of course they have connections to the higher ups at the resort to complain. So Armand is under the impression he's about to lose his job. Initially, he didn't steal Olivia and Paula's drugs, but he keeps them and goes on a drug bender. And he goes into Shane's room while he's not there and literally shits on his luggage. I was so disgusted. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Are you serious? I know I have not worked in hospitality. I did work in customer service for a brief period. I know that people can be assholes. I know, people can be real assholes. Shane is an asshole. 
However, to shit on somebody's possessions, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Never in my life, regardless of any type of client, co-worker I was dealing with, have I ever felt like, oh, I want to crap on their possessions. I want to tamper with the snacks at their cubicle or their drinks. At No, I've never thought that. And I've never done that. Unacceptable. Unbeknownst to him, Shane comes to his suite when Armand didn't think he would. And Shane senses somebody is in the room. He ends up stabbing Armand, who was hiding. And it's not until he looks up from stabbing Armand in his chest that he realizes he stabbed Armand to death. So Armand is dead. Do I feel bad for him? No. The final scene, we see the White Lotus staff already waving and fake smiling as a new set of guests arrive at the resort. We see Belinda and we see Armand's replacement and we see Lonnie's replacement. And that just rings true to the opening scene where it shows how replaceable and disposable the staff are, as well as how they were treated. Some people think that the wealthy, bigoted white guests just got to get away with what they, the, the terrible things that they did and just live their happy lives. I disagree. Even though Kai was so sweet, he didn't have to go along with Paula's plan, but he decided to, and I know he was desperate. But Mark and Nicole did not ruin his life. He made a poor decision. In no way am I defending Mark and Nicole, but they, they did not ruin his life. Tanya did not ruin Belinda's life. Did she shatter her dreams in that moment? Yes. But then also on Belinda's side, yeah, you have a connection with this woman. You've bonded, you empathize, but you've only known her for a week. I think it was naive of her to think that this woman was committed to building out this spa-like business with her. Not only the fact that you've only known this woman for a week, but the fact that this woman is a mental and emotional wreck. She just threw the ashes of her abusive dead mother and then jumped into bed with the first guy that showed interest. So she did not ruin Belinda's life. My hope for, my, my hope for Belinda is that she takes that money and saves up as she works at the White Lotus until she can strike out on her own. Shane, he did not ruin Armand's life. Armand ruined his own life. He did not have to respond to the stress of running this hotel by going on a drug bender, by sleeping with an employee, by shitting on a guest's luggage. Now, are all the guests problematic? Yeah. But did they ruin some, did they ruin the staff's lives? No. Now I'm going to break down why it's not a happy ending. Because if you think about it, these people 
are coming from their upper middle class to wealthy neighborhoods, I'm going to say rich or wealthy neighborhoods, to this resort to get away and enjoy their vacation, and nobody really enjoyed their vacation. Case in point, the Mossbachers. Mark and Rachel, they tolerated each other, and it's very obvious that Nicole has been the matriarch and patriarch of the family. The fact they're on this vacation, and while Mark is sulking about possibly having cancer, about his father being bi or gay, she's moving stuff around to, to do work on this vacation, trying to make her son feel comfortable after her daughter has pushed him out of the main room, having to go back and forth with her daughter who's constantly being rude to her and disrespectful. She, she, she's doing everything. She's doing everything, and, and it's obvious that that's the status quo and a common thing in their household. We never really saw her enjoy the trip. Yeah, she slept with her husband for the first time in a while, but no, she really didn't enjoy the trip. And, and the same with Mark. Like, he enjoyed it to an extent, but for the most part, not really. Right when he started to feel better, he went to tackle Kai because... Kai was robbing the suite and he thought he was going to hurt his wife. But Kai beat his ass. Kai could have broke his nose. Am I supposed to believe after that whole incident and them sleeping together for the first time in probably years that that saved their marriage that has likely been dysfunctional as hell for years? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paula. Yeah, she does get away with the fact she played a role in... The Mossbacher suite being robbed. She does get away with that in the sense Olivia didn't tell her parents. However, she will suffer the consequences. And we see that because she's, she feels guilty. And she even threw up because of how guilty she felt. And she knew her plan that she thought was going to be helpful for Kai wasn't a good idea after she found out he got arrested. And now she has to live with that. And on top of that, her friend, her so-called friend, Olivia, will hold that over her head for as long as they're still friends. Even when they had their argument and Olivia called her out and said, I know that you had something to do with this and Paula tried to explain, Paula even said, you're performative, you're like your parents, and I feel like you use me as a prop for some weird cred, okay? That really is the raw truth of their relationship. They use each other. One, to feel like they're better than their bigoted community members, and the other for adjacency to privilege. She did not get off scot-free. And as a result, Olivia can have all the power she wants over her. If she were to get arrested, it's over. It's over. So there's that. 
Tanya and that man are not going to last. He's either going to cheat or just leave her because she's too much of a wreck or she's going to end up taking care of him as his cough worsens and we find out that he has cancer and likely dies. She just invested the time she could have invested into herself and trying to reconcile with past decisions and childhood trauma into a man, like her mother did. That's not a happy ending. Rachel and Shane. So many of us know Rachel and Shane's. So many of us know of Rachel and Shane's. Some of us are Rachel and Shane's. And for that reason, we already know what future Rachel is going to be. Let me break it down. She will stay with Shane, get used to the lifestyle of being with him, get used to his mother meddling and always being in his business. She will become a former, she will become a shell of herself, integrate into his lifestyle, be the trophy wife he can have on his arm. They'll have kids. Part of her will think, oh, even more so I made the right decision because we have this beautiful family. But then later on, she'll realize it's not enough. There will be a point he gets physically abusive at least once. They'll both have their own affairs. By the time the children are preteens and teens, they'll both be so stuck in their own little worlds that they'll neglect their children and not even know what the hell is going on with their preteens and teenagers to the point where their teenagers can be drinking and getting high at a friend's house and they'd have no idea because they're so stuck in their own little worlds. And by then, yes, Rachel will be living a comfortable life where she doesn't have to work in order to survive and pay her bills and keep a roof over her head. She will be a bitter PTA wine mom. And that's the truth. So nobody really gets a happy ending. Some people say Quinn gets a happy ending because he gets to canoe with those local paddlers across the island and he plans to go and like canoe with them across Polynesia. But again, that's not a happy ending. What the hell does he know? He's 16. Yeah, he doesn't like life. He, he's a teenager. He looks like a weirdo. He has no friends because he doesn't look like a weirdo. His sister doesn't like him and his parents don't really understand them because they're stuck in their own little world. So yes, this is freeing. It's pretty. It seems simple. But who's to say this is what he's going to do for the next year, the next two, three years, the next five years? Like, am I really supposed to believe this 16-year-old found his purpose after a week in Hawaii? Absolutely not. Moving along, my opinion of the show. I like that out of many of the quote unquote prestige TV shows we've seen, this show does not glamorize or celebrate or fetishize white privilege. It just shows it as it is. It shows the harm, the cons of it. It just shows it as it is. I like that they left the show open-ended where we could see some of the characters potentially return in season two 
or if they decide that they're going to have this show have multiple seasons. In addition, I wish that those group of paddlers got more screen time because they're fine as hell. Now, in terms of awards, a lot of people think this show should sweep all of the award nominations come award season and should win all of the awards. I disagree. Was the show good? Yes. Was the acting good? Yes. Were the visuals good? Yes. Was the score good? Absolutely. But do I believe this show should get all of the award the all the award nominations and all of the awards? Absolutely not. Why? We've had prestige television for a while showing privileged wealthy white people for a very long time. I don't believe because this show is just showing white privilege as it is that it should get a pat on a back and a cookie for showing it as it is. That's like someone saying, yeah, I'm an asshole. I'm abusive. I'm a terrible person. It is what it is. And then you hand them a fucking Emmy. No, no. It may be interesting to watch that character on television for multiple seasons because there's different layers to them and that actor's performance, but no. Especially when we're in a time where we're seeing more and more representation of the BIPOC community. What I don't want is this show to get too many award nominations where there are other shows that could have been nominated that were greater and had a greater message just because you show it as it is. Because I feel that if this show gets nominated for, let's say, five plus awards and wins the, all of those, it's just further perpetuating the privilege that it shows. And that is literally celebrating it. So yes, The White Lotus was a good show. I'll be interested when they release a season two trailer to determine if I'll watch the new group of guests at a different resort. However, I don't believe this show should sweep award season. And that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tell me what you think. Have you seen White Lotus? What did you think? What did you like? What did you not like? Who were your favorite characters? Who couldn't you stand? What did you think of the season finale? Let me know at Bell in Progress. So that's B-E-L-L-E in Progress on Twitter. Um, B-E-L-L-E in Progress at Twitter. And I will catch you guys very soon. Bye.